You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change podcast by the team at Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. This is a show about the innovators and entrepreneurs developing solutions to climate change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast with Nori. I'm Ross Kenyon. I'm the creative editor of Nori and one of the co-founders here. Today I have with me Ian W. Toll, the author of Six Frigates, as well as his Pacific War trilogy, Pacific Crucible, The Conquering Tide, and Twilight of the Gods. Thanks for being here, Ian. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's my sincere pleasure. I love your books. I've read this trilogy twice. Uh, Six Frigates I read recently too, which is fantastic as well. But I have to say, I think it's pretty unlikely that you get a lot of climate or environmental podcast invitations. Is this is this your first? This is my first. Yes, this is my first. I actually am uh, one of my one of my oldest friends is the host of uh, another environmental podcast, and I have sent him a couple of guests. But uh, he had never asked asked me to do his podcast, and I'd never had expected it. So this was a pleasant surprise to be asked to do something outside my my normal uh, space, which is history. I think when you have guests on too, I think people have a tendency to go into their regular spiel. So whenever you can break them out of it a little bit, I I yeah. uh, think it makes for better radio. Not to put the pressure on too much on you, but uh, I know you probably feel a little bit of that now, given that you're outside of your normal ken. Maybe we can start there, though. I think people are super familiar with the European theater in World War II. The Pacific, I think, is much more mysterious to most listeners. Uh, of all the things that you could write thousands of pages about, how did you land on World War II's Pacific theater? Yeah, well, I really, I had come at it um, from two directions. One, I'd always been really interested in Japan. I'd lived there as a child from the ages of 11 to 14. Um, my father's company had transferred him there. So, you know, those are formative years, obviously, uh, for anyone living in uh, Tokyo. And so, you know, in a way, I still feel like the place is my home. And I had gotten very interested in the history of the Second World War, you know, back then when I was 12 years old. And so that, that had just always been an interest. And then I separately got very interested in naval history, not just during the era of World War II, but... Uh, of the era of uh, wooden wooden ships, wooden sailing ships. Sounds like you just read some Patrick O'Brien and set you off or something. Yeah, Patrick O'Brien was was definitely one of the authors who got me really fascinated in, in that subject. He's a for your listeners is an English historical novelist who wrote a, a very long series of books about the British uh, Royal Navy during the period of the Napoleonic Wars really fantastic novels, some of the best historical novels I think ever written. And that, that's part of what led me to my first book, Six Frigates, was uh, wanted to write about the, the kind of the beginnings of the U.S. Navy and, and try to set that story within the bigger story of the founding of the U.S. of the United States and the early foreign policy challenges that the country faced after the American Revolution. So I wrote that book, Six Frigates, and then, uh, you know, I had not really planned to become a an author, a professional author, I, I had thought of Six Frigates as being one book, you know, one project that I would write. It was post 9-11. I, I thought I'd try something, you know, do something unusual. And if I could get it published, it'd be great. And then I'd go back to my life. But the book was successful enough uh, commercially that my publisher wanted me to keep going. And um, we discussed several different ideas. And one was to write a, uh, a big history, new naval history of the of the Pacific War, 
And uh, they loved that idea. They offered me a contract. I took it. I signed it. That one book turned into three. And here I am, you know, 15 years later, uh, having written a huge trilogy about the Pacific War. <laughs> but I, I agree. It's, it's the Pacific War is, um, is, is really its 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 own thing. I mean, we, you know, we, we talk about World War II in terms of theaters. Really, these were separate wars. And the Pacific War was a unique war in many ways, by far the largest naval war ever fought. It's the only war ever fought across the entire breadth of the Pacific Ocean. And it was a naval war, an air war, and an, an island war. And I think that, you know, we as Americans in particular, not being an island people, we tend to think of, of war principally as war on land, uh, armies on land. And naval operations you know, we are instinctively think of those as sort of supporting or auxiliary operations. You know, in, in, the, in most wars, that has been the case. In, in the Second World War in, in Europe, that was certainly the case. Naval operations played a supporting role. And that was true in North, North Africa, but also in, in the European theater. In the Pacific, you really have to invert your way of thinking. And you have to think, I really think you... you need to begin by thinking of the Pacific War as a naval war and an air war in which island operations fighting on savage fighting on islands, that was an auxiliary type of operation. Uh, so you know, we would take an island when we needed it as an air base or as a naval base or both. And But if you didn't need that island for that purpose, you know, generally we would bypass these islands. And if there were Japanese soldiers on them, leave them behind to wither on the vine was the term. So really the principal kind of tactical strategic problem was to destroy Japanese naval power and then cut Japan off uh, from its overseas sources of natural resources, its ability to support its overseas armies, to establish uh, control of the sea in the Western Pacific, and then eventually to you know, destroy Japan's ability to defend its, its airspace essentially wipe the cities and the industries out from the air, which is what we did in that very brutal war. And then at that point, the war really is over. It just becomes a question of how exactly it's going to end and, and critically how, how you're going to force the Japanese to acknowledge the necessity to surrender, avoiding a bloody invasion. Hmm. I like this reframing where we definitely give primacy to land forces in U.S. history. I, I think it is also a result of geography and the conflicts that we've been involved with. One thing that struck me in reading your series is how rural and wild the environments are. When there's fighting in Europe, it's cities, there's villages, you know, maybe you're out in the countryside and there's hedgerows, but there's also people living there. And I feel like with the exception possibly of Okinawa, oftentimes these are lightly inhabited or much less inhabited than other places where fighting is happening at the same time. These are in some cases unspoiled wildernesses or very like subsistence livings have taken place on them, but not wildly transformed like Europe. Right. Is this wild frame? Am I onto something here? Is that true? No, it's absolutely true. Uh, you know, I mean, th these were, when you look at the geography of the Pacific, you have uh, Melanesia and Micronesia. Melanesia is really southern Oceania, where you have large land masses, New Guinea and, and a, a large island groups there. Island, the islands are relatively close together. And then in the central Pacific, you have Micronesia, which is really just a, it's just an ocean with tiny 
atolls, atolls being the remnants of ancient volcanoes, you know, ring-shaped, essentially barrier islands enclosing lagoons. And that's the geography that goes on for literally thousands and thousands of miles across the kind of uh, equator, the equatorial region of the Central Pacific, uh, what we call Micronesia. And then the peoples, you have the Polynesian peoples and the Melanesian peoples who are, are somewhat distinct. And, th you know, those nations today are among the most remote, still among the most remote nations, not very well known. I mean, many of them are, are paradises in, in terms of their extraordinary natural beauty, but they're so far away from almost everywhere. And there's so many of them that, you know, they haven't really developed into tourist destinations. There's really only a handful of places in the Pacific that are kind of well known for that reason, for being tourist destinations, obviously Hawaii, but, you know, you'd say maybe Fiji as well. Beyond that, there's, you know, many of these places are, are remote, they're poor, they're economically dependent on the outside world for support. They're very lightly populated. They're extraordinarily beautiful places. If you do visit, very few people do. And of course, that's today, you know, 2022, well, you know, rewind to 1940. A lot of these places and these people had had little or no contact uh, with the outside world. You know, in some places in the interior of New Guinea, you had uncontacted peoples who kind of came into contact, obviously, with, with tragic, often with tragic results, with military forces that passed through during the war. But uh, really, you just have um, people who are living very much as they would have lived in centuries earlier in many of these places. And then you have you know, Japanese forces, American forces, British allied forces coming in, uh, sweeping in, passing through, and then just vastly and forever changing the lives of these people, often for the worse, in some respects, perhaps for the better, but really kind of breaking that link they had to the, the way that they were living uh, in the past. Perhaps the most readily at hand examples of this are cargo cults, but yes. also the proliferation of spam throughout the entire Pacific? Right. Are those good examples of this? Yes, yes. And, and, and the way that, um, you know, that kind of often that, that change in the diet that occurred as a result of that. So things like spam and other canned provisions, you know, just maybe it's helpful to pick an example. You have the uh, nation of today is called Yap. Back then, it was called the Caroline Island Group. And there was a, there's a, a series of these, these atolls, enormous atolls. I mean, we're talking lagoons that are often more than 100 square miles in area, you know, enclosed by these very long, narrow barrier islands, you know, in more or less in a ring shape. And there would be interest channels in which you could bring a ship into the lagoon. The lagoons are often are very good anchorages because there's a shallow, sandy bottom. And the, the barrier islands are essentially act as natural breakwaters. And so, you know, you could, you could bring a whole fleet into a place like Ulithi Atoll, which is one of the big atolls in um, Caroline Island Group. And essentially, our Pacific fleet used this as its home base for the last year of the Pacific War, as its anchorage. Now, Ulithi Atoll was populated by, you know, probably on the order of maybe 400 people. And these are, uh, this is a Polynesian people 
who in 1944 were living, you know, very much the same way their ancestors would have been living 100, 200, 300 years earlier. They had been, you know, in touch with missionaries, for example, they'd been Jesuit missionaries who had come in previous centuries, introduced Christianity, and then left. And then these people had once again been living with little or no contact with the outside world, fishing, uh, weaving their own clothes out of uh, fibers, you know, growing, uh, you know, certain types of crops that uh, will will work in that environment, and 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 really just sort of living, you know, the way native peoples would have lived in the Pacific in the past. And all of a sudden, you have, you know, first the Japanese come in; they're fairly brutal. They use these people as kind of slave, slave laborers, uh, kill some of them. And then the Americans come in and <clears throat> you can imagine how sort of bewildering these, this is to these Polynesian natives. As soon as they realize that the Americans are enemies of the Japanese, they say, okay, we're for you. And, uh, you know, as an American, you say, okay, well, what's the right thing to do in that situation? Well, you obviously you want to protect these people. You want to move them to a place where they're not going to be directly affected by the combat or where they would be, say, molested by our own service troops. So in that case, we we go to the chief. uh, We send a civil affairs officer in. He talks to the chief of the tribe, convinces uh, him to move the entire tribe to an island in the southern part of of the lagoon where they'll be sort of isolated from this, you know, we're bringing 200,000 service people in, right, aboard these in this fleet. Most of them will be on the, living on the ships. But then there's also, you're building air bases on some of these islands. You're turning one of the islands into a recreation. I mean, it's like massive redevelopment occurring. And you say to, the, uh, to this little group of people, you know, we will make sure that you have enough to eat for the duration of our stay. We will send doctors in to provide medical care if you want that. Okay, good. You know, Uncle Sam being generous, that's kind of what you want. But those people will never return to the way that they did things before. And this has happened to one Pacific people after another. And um, even to the extent of, you know, if you're getting canned provisions, you know, that your metabolism may change, actually. And this seemed to happen to a lot of the Pacific peoples. Their metabolism changed to the point where actually it was difficult for them to survive on the sources of food that they had used before. And so then they're, they're sort of placed in this position of dependence that continues even beyond the end of the war. So that, that's the kind of thing that happened, I think, throughout the Pacific. I've definitely traveled places where this type of relationship had happened you know, years ago, but still persisted where there's dependence and gratitude at your coming but there's also this undertone of resentment too like it just some some places i've been it, it hasn't felt right even though there has been voluntary commercial exchange happening it felt something had happened here that wasn't good just to continue and we're talking about Ulithia, I told there's a fabulous book uh, it was a memoir written by a navy public affairs officer who was the guy who kind of went in initially and was in charge of you know developing the the relationship with this this group of Ulithians, Polynesian people, and he uh, he grows very fond of these people. Also, is fascinated in the you know the same way as someone who kind of grew up reading National Geographic would just naturally be fascinated, you know, coming into contact with a group of people that had been you know living with 
essentially no contact with the outside world. It's sort of poignant. The chief, the old chief, actually asks him if he'd like to take over and be the new chief. And he answers, well, you know, I would have to actually get permission from my admiral. And I, I don't expect that my admiral would give me permission to do that. In your Lithi uh, Atoll, you had, you know, one of the more, and there's, I mean, there's a, 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 probably a thousand stories you could tell about an environmental catastrophe in the Pacific. But in your Lithi Atoll in November 1944, you had a mobile oiler, oiler fleet oiler. So these were ships, uh, 25,000 ton ships, big ships, that essentially would go out and refuel American naval vessels and do it at sea. And so what they called underway replenishment. And this was some, this was a, a critical logistical innovation that the Navy uh, was able to kind of perfect by the end of the Pacific War. We had these big carrier task forces roaming through the Pacific, traveling thousands of miles you know, traveling very quickly, cruising at 20 knots and then dialing up 30 knots for combat operations. Huge fleets. I mean, the biggest fleets that had ever been assembled up to that time and actually much larger than, than any naval fleets that we have today in terms of either the number of ships or absolute tonnage. So carrier, you know, carrier task forces with, uh, you know, 16 aircraft carriers, you know, supported by battleships, cruisers and destroyers. You know, traveling very quickly. And, and so the, these fleet oilers would, you know, they'd load up from the commercial oilers, they'd take on fuel oil, aviation fuel, diesel fuel and separate tanks. And then they would uh, they'd go out and they'd meet these carrier task forces out in some remote place at sea, and they'd refuel them at sea. And, and, and this became important, particularly in the Western Pacific, because of the distances involved. The carrier task forces would not have to return to some centralized place to refuel. They'd be able to refuel and keep on going and keep hitting, keep moving, keep the Japanese guessing about where they're going to be, where they're going to go. And this was an important factor in how we won the Pacific War. Well, so this uh, oiler, it's called the uh, Mississinua, Mississinua, I believe named after a place in Ohio, at Anchor. And it had just refueled from a commercial tanker. So its tanks were full of fuel oil as well as aviation fuel. And the Japanese had launched what they called Kaiten. And these were, this was the kind of the less well-known part of the uh, kamikaze suicide campaign. They had these manned, I guess you would call them manned torpedoes. They were essentially one-man submarines with a torpedo warhead that the idea was that you would drive them directly into the hull of a ship, and the, and the uh, a pilot, of course, would be giving his life. And they launched a bunch of these things just outside of the atoll. They snuck in through some of the entrance channels, and one of these things hit the Mississinua, November 20th, 1944, lit this thing up. The aviation fuel tanks went up. The whole thing just caught fire very quickly. 63 of the crew, almost, I think it was like, a crew of 80, so 63 of them were uh, went down with the ship, killed in action. And this uh, ship very quickly just kind of burned out of control, rolled over, sank in 130 feet of water, I think, in the middle of this lagoon, enclosed lagoon. And for 60 years almost, it basically was undiscovered. The location of the wreck had not been identified. And despite the fact that it had, you know, however many thousands of tons of fuel uh, in the tanks, it wasn't leaking, or at least it wasn't leaking much. 
And then a typhoon hit, I think, in 2001. A typhoon went there, and it, it sort of disturbed the rack, shifted it slightly, and it started leaking. It started leaking an enormous amount of oil uh, into this lagoon, threatening the reefs, threatening the fishing, threatening the livelihoods of the Ulithian people who live there. And so the U.S. government had a, a sort of an environmental catastrophe for which it felt responsible. Uh, and went in um, two years later and um, with a salvage team, went down there and essentially pumped all the oil out in a successful cleanup slash salvage operation. And so that's a win. You know, I, I think there's probably many other examples you point to where there hasn't been a win like that. But that was an example where the U.S. government, I think, could, could say justifiably, you know, we, we went in there and we were able to pump out the oil and, and protect the, the reef and the fishing uh, in this, this one atoll. And that's 60 years later, you know, so that <laughs> just gives you a sense of, of how, you know, how, how, how long these, things, these wrecks can, can be time bombs. And they're all over the Pacific, you know, there's hundreds of wrecks, many of which are, are still leaking. And, and, you know, at any time in the future, uh, potentially, you know, particularly in the shallower lagoons, a typhoon can shift the wreck. You'll have a, another oil leak and we'll have to be dealing with this, could be dealing with this for hundreds of years even in the future. It's hard to read your books and not think about all of like, especially these atoll locations, which are protected anchorages for huge numbers of ships like Ulithi or Anawitak or Kwajalein for the, mm-hmm. primarily for the Japanese, right? Also just down- us, yeah. I mean, those, each of those places you just mentioned was, you had a, was a Japanese fleet base, which later became an American fleet base. Yeah, and I'm sure that changeover certainly had ships sink there. And it's not like if it's sinking in the open ocean, there's at least uh, the old adage, the solution to pollution is dilution, yeah. right? right? But you think if you have all these ships in this small area, I feel like that could permanently uh, endanger a population that lives on an island. That ecosystem could be severely changed in an irreparable way. Yes. Yes. There are probably countless examples of this. I think in the Pacific people probably most commonly think of uh, nuclear war, uh, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and then also the Pacific testing grounds too. How did that even happen? How did we decide that like this beautiful open expanse of untouched natural environment was the safest place to, to do this? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that the, the post-war nuclear tests, I think it was just in, um, I mean, that was an era when our government, maybe our society, was in the habit of thinking of um, a very small population of Polynesian people in the Marshall Islands as being, um, you know, it's you can pick them up and move them from one island to the next and their lives are not going to change that much. And uh, we're going to look after these people. We're going to make sure they have enough to eat. So, you know, destroying one of these many atolls, massive hydrogen bomb tests, it's not doing any great damage. It's just one of a infinite, seemingly infinite number of islands in the you know remote Pacific. And, and you know, so th- those kinds of attitudes were prevalent. Now, of course, we look back and say that's uh, unacceptable. And I think it was, but it was a different time. It was, you know, a period in the Cold War when we, uh, you know, I think Probably there was a view that it was somewhat of a matter of life and death to test these weapons. Soviets began testing as well. You know, we had that 10-year period in the 50s when 
the testing became almost like a signaling, a way of signaling. You know, you had a series of, of these tests where it seemed like the Soviets and the Americans were competing to, you know, who, who could fire off a larger, you know, above ground nuclear test. And uh, fortunately, we left that period behind with a test ban treaty, which I think turns 60 this year. This, yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure what more to say about it, really. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in that. It's, uh, you know, really my, my expertise is focused mostly on the events of the Second World, World War themselves. Yeah, I don't mean to put you on the spot. And I could see how good faith someone might think that this part of the Earth does feel functionally limitless, the most isolated, the least populated, and may in fact be the safest. And if there are in functionally innumerable number of atolls, what's destroying one for the sake of the free world? I can kind of see why that attitude might have happened. And also with these atoll bases too, you're like, oh, it's a great anchorage. It's for a, the greater good. There is a huge number of these. Does it ultimately matter so much if one gets polluted and destroyed? I wonder to what degree they even thought about that. Did that, I, think did you, that, that any... I think you've accurately represented the prevailing attitude. Yeah, huh. absolutely. Huh. And the Marshall Islands were, you know, we there was a, a lot of discussion about setting these up as independent countries or as international protectorates. And it was really... A decision made with the input of the Navy in particular to uh, actually retain these as territories, which they are to this day. And so I think that there was a feeling within the military, especially these very, very remote, small countries with very small populations were essentially, um, you know, ours by right of conquest. Mm. And that... um, it was a suitable place for us to do this kind of testing for the reasons that you said, that how remote they were, how small the populations were, are feeling, you know, a feeling that we're going to be able to do right by these very small populations by moving them, just kind of moving them on 500 miles away to another atoll. They're going to live their lives in the same way, and we're going to provide them with whatever they need. I'd like to move on to the land a little bit, even though we started this conversation saying that's uh, to some degree secondary. I think there are some obvious changes to the environment on land in the Pacific, especially if you read something like uh, Eugene Sledges with the old breed, or if you watch the Pacific, the miniseries, you see just how destroyed these environments are, where Okinawa in the show looks like the Western Front in World War One or something. It's just a mud hell. It's yeah. terrible. And so there's some obvious environmental conclusions that one can draw. But also I wanted to read a block quote from your book, Twilight of the Gods, that really captured my attention. And I don't think people realize the degree to which this terraforming took place. So here I am reading you. Tinian, the once verdant tropical island south of Saipan, was now the largest airbase in the world. Nearly half of its 39 square miles had been paved over to accommodate airfields for B-29s and fighters. North and west fields included eight great runways for super fortresses, each almost two miles long and the width of a 10-lane highway. They were connected to parking aprons, hard stands, and fuel storage farms by 11 miles of taxiways. Most of a long ridge had been leveled to supply coral rock for this vastness of pavement and asphalt. From the air, a witness recounted, Tinian resembled a giant aircraft carrier, its deck loaded with bombers. It sounds like Tinian is fundamentally and permanently changed by its war experience. Yeah. 
and surely this happened at places beyond Tinian too. How many islands were just radically, irrevocably changed? Well, you know, gosh, you'd have to go through and count them up. And uh, I, I think it would, you know, probably run into the hundreds, maybe. I mean, wow. you have a lot of small islands that uh, where, you know, something would have, you would have been a, built a seaplane base, for example. And so an enormous amounts of concrete poured. Concrete made from coral in many cases, right? So you go and demolish a coral reef to turn that coral into concrete. You know, on the larger islands, you know, you had coral depositories. And the game would be to, you know, send the engineers in uh, first to identify where is the coral rock? Where can we quarry it? And then you need to establish that quarrying operation early in the process of redeveloping a place like Guam, for example. And then you've got to bring trucks in to take that crushed coral rock and move it to the airfield that you're building. And then you're just dumping enormous amounts of crushed coral rock directly into the, uh, to the runway beds. And so really just a, a huge amount of paving going on. So Tinian, which you mentioned, smaller island just off of Saipan in the Marianas. If you open up Google Earth and you look at Tinian today, you still see the remnants of those long runways. These are two-mile runways, you know, as wide as like an eight-lane highway. And these are the runways they had to build for the B-29, which is the largest plane ever put into combat um, operation up to that time. You know, very, very large planes by the standards of the 1940s. And so um, you can you can look at Tinian today and you sort of see the remnants of these uh, overgrown airfields, which take up most of the northern part of the island. And, uh, and yeah, it was, the, it was the ability of the U.S. military forces to go in and do construction on a scale like that, which I think was one of the factors that most surprised the Japanese. They didn't realize that we could do what you would call logistics on that kind of a scale. The ability to build really huge air bases in the Western Pacific at the end of a, a 6,000-mile you know, seaborne supply line, and to do that very rapidly. That was an important factor leading to the American victory. And, you know, we didn't think too much in terms of environmental impacts in the 1940s, but, you know, you pour that amount of concrete into an isolated island, and, you know, as you say, that island will just never, never be the same. That happened again and again all across the Pacific. I'd also be curious to know to what degree defoliants and I mean, people think about Agent Orange in Vietnam, but I'm sure there's huge amounts of DDT going on all these islands as anti-malarial prophylaxis and things of that nature, surely, right? Yeah, yeah. Napalm. Napalm was all over the Pacific as well. Also all over Korea. Didn't really become notorious, I think, until Vietnam. I think it was Halsey, Admiral Halsey, who said when he was asked to kind of rank the five most important weapons of the Pacific War. It was the, the airplane, the submarine, radio, radar, and the bulldozer. Uh, I thought that was striking that he, he nominated the bulldozer as being one of the five most uh, important weapons of the Pacific War. Yeah, I mean, I think the work of Seabees is, it's common in reading histories too, to see they're all over the place, how much construction is actually taking place. And not just for forward air bases things too. It's also places like 
again with Eugene Sledge, is going to Pavuvu and the Solomons and having a recreational area or, or like a R&R zone and how many yeah. like hospital islands and other things that have to be created just logistically to sustain this amount of people in this unpopulated distant area. Just where, yeah, warehouses. I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, Guam, which really became the kind of the, the main backstop for our invasion of Japan, at least prior to Okinawa, just the sheer amount of warehouse in, in inside warehouse space you need, and the and the and the amount of, of construction that 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 uh, requires, it was just done on a scale that was pretty extraordinary. I mean, it would be eye popping today, and and this was in the 1940s. It was done just the the amount of building that occurred in these places. I think by one estimate, for example, the total amount of um, development of all kinds done on Okinawa from our invasion in April 1945 to a year later was estimated to be uh, essentially tantamount to building up the entire state of Rhode Island from virgin forest land. What? Within a year? Within a year. Wow. In terms of the roads, the, you know, the, the housing that was built, the warehouses, the airfields, all of it. Just the amount of concrete that was poured, the amount of uh, electricity that was brought in, the water systems. That was the CB's estimate of, of the scale of that effort. And that's one island. <laughs> Where's the James Mishner story about concrete? Well, he did get into it, actually. Um, if, if you read uh, Tales of the South Pacific. Sounds um, like it needs a reread at this point but yes <laughs> yeah no he there's um he actually w- was witness to it was during the uh, invasion of the gilberts it was the sledgehammer operations and it was one of the small outlying islands that was taken with the purpose of building an auxiliary air base and there was a very small japanese garrison there the marines you know i think of like four battalions went in and then they brought in the cbs almost immediately while the japanese were still shooting to start clearing and expanding this airfield. And um, it's just a, a chapter in that in, later in that book. But it's a, you know, Mishner was a, a good storyteller. And I think that was maybe his best book of the 50 or so that he wrote. I think I've read probably 15 <laughs> or 20 of them. And yeah, some of them, some of them are better than others. We can say that. He, he definitely was the guy who liked to just get the rough draft out and then just send that directly to the publisher. <laughs> he is amazingly prolific, and that's probably part of it. As someone who's written multiple books, surely you envy that pace. <laughs> yeah. Was there anything as transformative for the Pacific besides World War II? Surely this is the biggest thing that has ever happened in the, except maybe settlement, settlement at all. And then after that, it's this. Yeah, sure. And if you take the whole Pacific, I mean, you know, the Pacific, you know, it's about a fifth of the world's land surface area. Right, so you could you could take all the world's land masses combined and fit them into the Pacific, and you still have some Pacific Ocean to spare. So, you know, to generalize about a region that that large, you know, has there ever been any one thing uh, that certainly the Pacific War? And there's nothing else like it. We've never had a, a war. We've never had a war that fought across that ocean. Since then, we can hope that we never will again. Uh, certainly the sort of transformative power of, of those less than four years has got to be unique in the history of the Pacific. 
Are there any lessons or conclusions you've been able to draw from your research that might aid us in mapping a course for the future? Well, there's, I mean, there's a lot of ways I can answer that, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I, um, much as, as war fascinates me, and it's been my profession now for 20 years, I think it's uh, clear that the real lesson is that it's to be avoided. And, you know, today in the Western Pacific, between Taiwan, North Korea, there's a lot of danger there. There's a lot of flashpoints that potentially could lead to war. You know, our, our attention has been somewhat diverted by Russia and Ukraine, but uh, this may be the most dangerous region in the world right now. What is the answer? Well, you know, I, you listen to our war gamers and our planners. The Chinese would have an awfully tough time taking Taiwan, but we really don't want them to try. We really don't want to have to fight that war. It would be a terrible war. So, I mean, it, it's a very open-ended question you asked, so I'll give you a very open-ended answer. Uh, let's, talk about, let's try to avoid another war uh, in the Pacific in particular. Let's try to avoid going to war over Taiwan. And, and what does that imply? It implies um, an effective deterrent. The Chinese have to believe us when we say we're, we're going to defend the Taiwan, Taiwanese defend themselves. But also to try to, through diplomacy, arrest any sort of a tendency among the Taiwanese people to try to move toward a declaration of independence, which would provoke China. You know, this kind of awkward uh, policy of one, one China, this idea that we're all going to agree to the fiction that it's one country with two systems and someday we'll be reunited under circumstances that are kind of vague. That thing, maybe we need to keep that policy together with scotch tape and chewing gum uh, for another 20 years until circumstances there change to the point where you don't have the immediate danger of a war. Uh, so that, I guess that would be the conclusion is uh, uh, let's, just, let's just try to avoid another war in the Pacific. The first one was bad enough. Definitely. A story that you bring up in the book that is really important, and also it's just the least sexy part of war, insofar as this is even appropriate terminology at all, uh, is logistics and how much of this war was won and lost on the basis of material resources uh, ending up in the right places without interruption. And Japan, of course, does not do a good job at this by the end of the war. How could they? Whereas the U.S., the the logistical prowess, which you've illustrated too, by being able to build that amount of infrastructure and isolated atolls and islands, surely that is a logistical feat that has not been replicated too many times in world history. It's an amazing feat and certainly the biggest part of the story that is the most ignored. Yeah, it is. And and you know how much how much shipping had to be built to do that? You know, just given the given the geography, you know, moving the troops, the supplies, everything, moving it six thousand miles across the Pacific. We needed uh, fleets of cargo ships and oil tankers and floating dry docks and refrigerated hospital ships, ammunition ships. And almost all of the uh, ships in those fleets in 1945, at the end of the war, when we're moving into places like Iwo Jima and Okinawa, were built during the war. So these fleets did not exist before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And so you basically had the shipbuilding industry in the United States ramp up to a degree that really no one saw coming. I mean, even American planners, I don't think, dared to think that we could build as much shipping as we did in a very concentrated period of time using 
shipbuilding methods that had never been used before in some cases. And, you know, Henry Kaiser, who was essentially had a big civic uh, sort of civil engineering company, but had never built ships before, entered a, you know, bids to start start building ships at Kaiser Shipyards in Richmond, California. And, you know, he and his engineers just sort of came up with a, a way to, to do shipbuilding that had never been done before, where you would build the ship in sections elsewhere, or ship it in, uh, bring it in on uh, railways and assemble it, and very, very quickly build these ships, these, uh, these Liberty ships and these Victory ships. And let's be, you know, painfully honest about it, these were terrible ships. These were ships that were not built to make more than maybe one round-trip voyage, maybe two round-trip voyages across the Pacific before they'd have to be scrapped. But they didn't need a long lifetime. What needed to be done was to build these things very, very quickly and in very large volumes. And that's what they were able to do. And it it was pretty remarkable. I mean, I, I suppose this is not the podcast where you are going to sort of laud the virtues of American capitalism at great length. But, but the ability of American industry to, to ramp up very quickly to meet that challenge, it was pretty extraordinary. It really was. Oh, it absolutely is extraordinary. Even if you were critical of it, I don't know how you could avoid admitting that it's extraordinary. That level of mass production and planning is, is amazing. Yeah. As we're getting close to wrapping up here, I've never read Alfred Thayer Mahan, but I was curious to what degree you think his work holds up or is still relevant. Well, so, you know, my... Mahan is sort of an interesting case. So he was a, um, for your uh, listeners who don't know, he was a, uh, an American naval officer in the 19th century who essentially became a historian of naval power. And he was a very prolific author, you know, really kind of started around age 50 and um, knocked out a bunch of books very, very quickly and became this kind of international guru. And you had, you know, one major naval power after another who were essentially, you had the leaders reading his his books and designing their navies, literally kind of based on his recommendations. So in the 1880s and 1890s, he was, you know, probably the most single most influential intellectual slash historian slash analyst in terms of the uh, way that the major naval powers were thinking about building the next generation and they're, you know, building up the fleets of the future. So his influence was deeply felt, not just in the United States, but in Great Britain, in Germany, in Japan, in France, and essentially all of the uh, countries that were building big fleets at that time. At that time, his recommendation was what you have to do are build uh, fleets of battleships of the largest class. And these battleships have to be designed and trained to act together as a fleet. And you had to keep these fleets together. And essentially, the way you win a naval war is you with your concentrated fleet, you meet the enemy's fleet in battle and destroy it in one massive battle, essentially. And that's, that's how you should use your naval power. Now, his ideas, I think, were suitable for 1900, 1905, 1910. But, you know, even as he was, he died in 1914, a year before the beginning of the First World War. The technology was changing so rapidly at that time that, that this kind of these Mahanian orthodoxies very quickly became obsolete. You know, you had air power beginning Wright Brothers in 1903, and you had radio coming in. So you had the ability to actually contact your fleet commander from shore, which had never happened before in naval history. You had the submarine, you know, you had the coal-powered ships turning into oil, you know, a lot of different 
technological change is coming in a very rapid kind of period of time. So that if you talk about Mahan's in terms of his, what they called that kind of big, big gun, big battleship, Mahanian orthodoxy, that became obsolete. And by the Second World War, it was really irrelevant. And mainly it's interesting because some of those orthodoxies continue to sort of have take have a hold over naval officers. Particularly Japan, Japan, especially, right? They're always seeking this like one big battle. If they could just get the American fleet out in the open, right? They could have their like last shot at it. Yeah, never, that's right. Yeah. And so that's that influence of that Mahanian way of thinking persisted. Um, and as you say, the Japanese were the were the kind of the slowest to let go. And that became a real factor, you know, kind of uh, leading to the defeat of the Japanese Navy. And so so that that's the kind of story of Mahan. But as a historian, I you know, I'm working on another book right now and I'm reading his analysis of the uh, War of 1812 and the Great Lakes. And, uh, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, the guy really was I wouldn't say he's definitely his books are not the kind of books that are quick reads. You know, it's, it's hard going. But his, uh, as a thinker, I mean, the, sort of the clarity and the power of his analysis really does jump off the page even, you know, 130 years later. Well, I'm so happy you went to what you're working on next as we're starting to conclude here. What is it, what is it about? I know Six Frigates, though, you get into 1812. So surely it's not another book that touches on that, or is it? It's about the, uh, the War of 1812 on the Great Lakes. Oh, really? Oh, so it's in greater detail. Okay. My working my working title is um, the Freshwater War, and um, it's essentially about the war on the Canadian borderlands, including the naval war on Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, and Lake Champlain. I, mean, I didn't call- cover that at all in Six Frigates, uh, although I did, as you say, I wrote about the War of 1812, but not that part of the war. Wow, I guess. Seemingly a brownwater navy would be less controversial to the Jeffersonians than uh, the blue water one, right? Politics might be simpler. Yeah, I would say so. The fleets that we built on the Great Lakes were actually quite quite large. Wow. On Lake Ontario, they were building brigs of, say, 900 tons. But at the end of the war, British actually launched a three-decker ship of the line, which was larger than the Victory which was Admiral Horatio Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar, ship you can still visit at Portsmouth, England. Really a massive, massive ship built on Lake Ontario, which was landlocked then, <laughs> right? I mean, there was no way to get a big ship down the St. Lawrence. So these ships had to be built in what was then effectively a wilderness. Uh, and then were <laughs> launched onto these lakes where they were landlocked. We were building two ships of the line, similar dimensions, uh, which we would have launched, but the war ended. So there was a, you know, naval building construction on a pretty big scale. I think the War of 1812 is is fascinating and these early American foreign policy entangles and also the the wars with Barbary pirates, a lot of you details also super interesting. Why are these so neglected? It gets it gets almost less attention than something like Korea. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, the War of 1812 has been obscure for a lot of reasons, um, partly because it wasn't a necessary war. You know, you could have taken that war right out of American history. You, American I think you said that if, if you had rapid communication, that never would have happened, right? Would not have happened if you'd had a transatlantic telegraph cable because the British had uh, repealed this order in council, which was one of the reasons that we declared war. That happened before our declaration of war. And 
you know, frankly, the War of 1812 has been hard to explain. Historians have constantly, even now, struggled to sort of explain why this war was fought, you know, what the long-term consequences were, if any. It was not an American victory. It was not an, really an American defeat either. Sort of fought it to a draw. But I think the bigger issue, honestly, the reason why that whole period of American history continues to be a little bit obscure is because if you just think about how history is taught in schools, there's a lot of history to teach in a short period of time. You know, say you've got, if it's high school, you've got, you know, you've, you've got a year to teach American 19th century history. Well, you've got to do the revolution. That's the 18th and 19th century. You've got to, you've got to do the revolution. It's critical, right? And the American revolution is actually foundational part of our history. Then you've got the struggle over the constitution, adopting the constitution. What is the constitution? You know, so you're trying to teach high school students these things. These are complex events. And then almost immediately you, you get into the 19th century and you, you're dealing with the slavery and the struggle between the North and the South and the westward movement, the settlement of the West. And then you've got the Civil War. Then you've got the Industrial Revolution. You know, so really it's a lot of events there that have to be shoved into the framework of a high school or a college history class. And, you know, something's going to be neglected, right? Something's going to be neglected. And so, and so that, that period of the early American Republic after our constitution is adopted, but before we've, you know, really started to get into the, the sectional crisis and the struggle between the North and the South, I just think inevitably, practically speaking, uh, you end up sort of glossing over a lot of really fascinating, complicated history there without being able to sort of devote the time, you know, necessary to really explain what was happening there. And so I, I think that's that's part of the reason, really. Yeah, I suppose the same thing happens with the French and Indian War, too. I don't think like, anyone even know about that or Seven yeah. Years War. Like right. no one, it's just whatever, revolution, civil war, you're in, you're out. You get to World War One. It does mean that there's there's a role for someone someone like me to actually write these books, and there are going to be people out there who are interested in reading them. So it's me. It's it's, it's basically it's, it's someone like me. <laughs> if you're listening and you like the timbre of this conversation, as I'm fond of saying, Ian W. Toll's War in the Pacific trilogy is fantastic. Six Frigates is also a great early American naval history and also foreign policy history, too. And it touches on a lot of the great philosophical fights between Federalists and Anti-Federalists, too. Just great writing. I find it to be really readable, too. A lot of stuff. I've read a lot of books like this for a general audience or like light academic audience. Most of them are not this readable. So thanks for being here, Ian. I can celebrate you as much as you would like. I don't want to make you blush too much, but it's good stuff. I appreciate it. I appreciate everything you've said. I really enjoyed this conversation. It's been good. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what we do here, please give us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thanks so much for listening and have a lovely day. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please subscribe and give us a great rating and review on Apple Podcasts or a rating on Spotify, that'd be much appreciated. It helps us get our content out to more people. You can sign up for our newsletter at nori.com, follow us on social media, and we will catch you next time.